everybody, and welcome to this edition of So Important, where we talk to a wide variety of people about something interesting and important to them. I am really excited about my guest today, so let's get right to it. But let me start with a question. Did you ever read a book that you just loved from the very start that you found yourself underlining and commenting on almost every page, if you're that kind of person, and I am, or at least taking your time to really savor the reading experience because you just loved the topic and because the writing was just so damn good? Well, that was my experience reading Mike Edison's book, Sympathy for the Drummer, Why Charlie Watts Matters. In a nutshell, I felt like the book was written just for me. But in fact, I think everyone should read this book. Charlie Watts is the drummer for the Rolling Stones. Like the band, he matters a lot. And today, Mike and I are going to talk about why that is the case. Mike Edison is an accomplished and well-respected writer and raconteur. He is a former editor of High Times Magazine. He has written and published regularly over the years, including four books, and his latest on Charlie Watts is what we're going to talk about today. Mike shares my love for Charlie's work, and he went and wrote an entire book about how important Mr. Watts is not only to the Stones, but to all of rock and roll history. So, Mike, I'm really looking forward to chatting, and welcome to the show. Wow, that was about the nicest intro I could possibly imagine. Thank you so much, Monty. I'm wondering if you can tell us what your book is about and what led you to write this book on Charlie Watts. I've probably been thinking about writing this book since I was about 14 years old. When I started playing the drums and maybe in the back of my mind toying with the idea of being a writer, playing along with the Rolling Stones was much more difficult, I found, than playing along with things that I was told were difficult. Led Zeppelin, everyone I knew was Gaga for Rush and all these prog rock bands. And truth is, they held little interest for me because they didn't swing. I like rock and roll. And in the equation of rock and roll, the roll part is always the most important part. That's the sexy part, right? And these other bands, you can't dance to Rush. I was also very enamored of Keith Moon, but you can't dance to The Who. And Charlie Watts, I found out you couldn't imitate it. The best you could do was just sort of learn to to dance with it. Um, there was a lot of jazz. There was a lot of improvisation. He was severely over overlooked by people who should, who should know better. Um, he was un- underrated by all these drummers I knew who were just like vastly impressed by what I would consider very useless technique. Uh, all technique in the world isn't necessary in most cases. Neil Peart, there's no rush without him, but it's a very narrow margin of opportunity for that sort of drumming. Charlie Watts held in his left hand the history of the backbeat. I know you, you've done a whole podcast on the history of the backbeat. That's it. He kept the band swinging. He kept the band moving. There's also this myth that Charlie Watts played like a metronome, that he was steady, which is uh, absurd. There's hardly a Rolling Stones song that ends at the same tempo in which it begins. So thus began my uh, obsession and fascination with with the Rolling Stones and with Charlie Watts, the guy who motored this engine. And they'll all tell you, no Charlie Watts, no Rolling Stones. Uh, and, and it's just a fascinating thing. So here's this great artist that I thought had just been overlooked. There are lots of books about the Rolling Stones. And that's sort of, it was just sort of percolating for years and years and years. You can't believe the amount of notes that I had written on, on index cards, cocktail napkins, matchbooks. But somehow I kind of, kind of sorted it all out and realized why Charlie Watts matters and that I really did need to uh, write this book to remind everybody that it's the beat. It's the big beat, and it's the roll in the rock and roll, and if it don't swing, it don't mean a thing. You know, you and I are coming from the exact same place, and maybe that's the reason I find this all so fascinating. But I want to talk about some of the things that you said in your introductory comments, and I want to kind of unpack them a little bit. One thing you referred to is Charlie being a jazz-focused drummer. 
not just in terms of who he listened to, but in terms of how he plays. And that might surprise some people. So I'm wondering if you could just elaborate on that one point a little bit. Sure. Well, of course, Charlie's famous for playing his tiny jazz kit, you know, especially through the 70s when everybody else was going fully maximalist. And, you know, you had guys with double bass drums and 400 tom-toms. And here's Charlie Watts playing on this kit that was designed to be played in a Harlem nightclub. And he's going toe-to-toe with John Bonham and Keith Moon and all the heavy hitters. It was very were very heavy. Uh, Charlie's influences were Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker. He loves big band drummers. He also loves the guys that played on all the great Chicago blues records. Fred Below is his hero who played on lots of Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf and most of Chuck Berry's hits. So within Charlie is this innate sense of swing. He kind of lowered his standards to join the Rolling Stones. How is he playing jazz in the context of this hard rock? Well, let's let's take an example. Let's, uh, I think Midnight Rambler is, is an amazing example. It's like this symphony of violence. It's, it, the tempos shift, the meter shifts, it goes from swing to hard rock, it goes from slow to fast. There are stops all throughout, but it's really about the groove. It's about swinging, it's about meter. And there, there's an evolution of, of Charlie Watts too. If you listen to the early stuff, certainly, listen to them playing Down the Road a piece or anything on their early records when they were more or less just a very talented cover band, you hear him really swinging. It's in his right hand. It's dotted eighth notes, it's syncopation, it's all the things that really, really swing. It's not straight ahead. It's still, you know, charging hard and forward, very much with the right hand style of that came out of bebop, that came out of swing, you know, that became swing, that became, you know, the big band era and morphed into rock and roll. If you listen to Chuck Berry, it's 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 roll. It's not just rock. It's you know da 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 da. It's not da 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 like the Ramones. And that's always there. It's always present in all the stone stuff. One of the great things about Charlie Watts is that he didn't arrive fully formed. You know, with John Bonham, he started out right for the first record. I mean, he evolved creatively, of course, with the band, but that was it. You got John Bonham. When you got Keith Moon, from day one, you knew he was a lunatic. Charlie Watts sort of held back a little bit, and over the years, he opened up a little bit. The difference between him playing Not Fade Away or or any of the Chuck Berry covers on the first records, and then suddenly Jumpin' Jack Flash, Gimme Shelter, uh, all the stuff on Let It Bleed, it changes. But even it changes again when they got to Some Girls. And if you listen to Respectable, and this is a great example of finding jazz in a place where most people wouldn't consider it, he opens the hi-hats in the most counterintuitive places. He does roles where he has to speed up to catch up to Keith. So the tempos are not even, they're not consistent. It's not what a normal cat would play. And it's very hard to cop. He's improvising. And improvising is basically the very definition of jazz, right? That's, to me, one of my favorites of all his songs. Not only does it bring out what you're talking about in the jazz, but it also brings out something that adds to what you're saying, which is the idea that he's always a little bit behind the beat. He's trying to keep up with Keith. I think that's part of what gives it that swing and that role that you're talking about. Charlie is chasing Keith, and sometimes he has to like speed up and you know, put on the gas, the gas, 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 to catch up to him. And so you get these roles that sort of start out at one tempo and end in a completely different, just to catch up to Keith, and where he starts slightly off the beat. I love the introduction to Before They Make Me Run. The introduction to Hang Fire is, is, is mesmerizing. Kenny Aronoff sat down. Kenny Aronoff, of course, who um, became famous for playing with John Mellencamp, uh, and he's currently John Fogarty's tour drummer for 20 years. I mean, the guy's like a major talent, and, and, he, and he couldn't believe it. He was just in awe that something like that you know, could exist, because, and, he, and he's in awe not because it was wrong, but because it was so beautiful, and he just sort of 
said, wow, you know, if I played like that, I'd get fired. I wish I was in the Stones because no one else will let me play like that. You know, there's so many examples. And you mentioned the Let It Bleed album. If you listen to Monkey Man, if you listen to a number of the songs on there, you really hear that almost a shuffle underlying everything that they're doing on that album. And Monkey Man's a great example of the flaws in Charlie's playing. His right hand is much stronger than his left hand. He doesn't have the left hand like some of his heroes like Max Roach and Roy Haynes. These guys that, you know, score skitter along on the snare drum while they're swinging. But what he did was he took this sort of, uh, this flaw in his technique and made it an asset, you know, because you could hear, especially in the intro to Monkey Man, wah, bop, boom, bop, 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 boom. There's so much syncopation and it's the buzz rolls and the anticipation on his left hand that leads to the, to the real hard hits on the right hand. Well, building on something else that you said earlier, I went and turned to page 186 of your book. One of my favorite little quotes, you said, over the years, there had been the slow gestating of the Charlie Watts style. Now there was a Charlie Watts sound. Charlie Watts has a sound, and it's the snare drum sound, and it's the sound of rushing up to Keith, you know, to catch up with the beat. You had him beginning all these songs. If you listen to those later records, he starts like the first four songs are just solo drums. Tattoo You too. before that, you're hearing all these little drum licks and tattoos that start the song. All these little Charlie Wattsisms that I think spoke to fans and said, oh yeah, that's the Rolling Stones. That's the sound that we love. They have a style, they have an idiosyncrasy, and it's Charlie Watts. And at some point, they realized pump up the volume. And Charlie started getting louder and louder. If somebody were taking a contrary view, they would say, oh, no, no, no. It's when you hear those Keith Richards riffs, da-da-da-da, or whatever it is, da-da-da-da-da. As soon as you hear it, you know it's the Rolling Stones. People still think that way in some degree, wouldn't you say? Well, I think it's a combination of Keith's you know, big ringing open G chords and his own, I mean, he invented a way to play the guitar using that open G tuning, the five string guitar. And it's that sound. It's, it's that coupled with Charlie rushing up to him that created this very crazy rhythm section that didn't operate like a normal rhythm section. It operated like Keith and Charlie, not like any two other guys on the planet. You know, you hum with the work to Jumping Jack Flash, we all know the song, but when you listen to it, there's that thing that Charlie does that no other drummer is capable of doing. And by the way, check out like later versions of Jumping Jack Flash versus the single. On the single, he's very restrained. It was right sort of on the cusp of when, of like, you know, the first or second evolution of Charlie, uh, when he kind of just like opened up and began to play a lot more free and started finding more jazz in these tight places. He played very minimal. If you listen to him play it in 1978, which was such a great tour, he's really punching at the accents. He's really throwing down some real machine gun you know, rolls on the snare drum. He's feeling a lot freer. He feels less restrained. And it really makes a huge difference. In your book, you said that you know the song evolved to the point where it wasn't just about a crossfire hurricane. It actually became a crossfire hurricane. It's not just riff bashing. There's a lot more nuance going into it than most people you know, would really think or understand. And it's one of the great things um, I've been hearing about my book, the feedback that I'm enjoying is that people say, hey, man, you know, you know, dig your book. But I started listening to these songs, and I'm hearing them in a completely new way. Let me give you one more quote from your book. You say, the Rolling Stones were smart enough to hire a jazz cat who had always put the roll in front of the rock, a guy who didn't measure his worth by how many notes he played, whose ego was tempered by the primacy of the job, to put the song over to make the band sound great. While others battled their drums, Charlie finessed his. What a great paragraph that is. Oh, thank you. Um, and, I, and I feel that's really why Charlie Watts matters. Within everything he's done, there's a teaching moment. He never overplays. He knows what to do with space. He doesn't just fill it up for no reason at all. Uh, it's very nuanced. It's very improvisational, like I said. He brings this jazz element and this unexpected quality into places 
where a lot of guys will just go driving through. Charlie, it's, it's very thoughtful. And it really does come from an innate feeling of how to motor this band. And it does come with this partnership with Keith, too. It's a conspiracy, uh, this rhythm section. Yeah, you need those two playing off of each other the way they do. They got lucky with Bill Wyman, too, who's such an underrated musician. He understands what Charlie and Keith are doing. He, he's smart enough to like sort of ride herd over it. He has great jazz technique, great blues technique. He knows how to swing. He's never had too heavy-handed. It's exactly as complex as it need be. He understood that his drummer was going to speed up to catch up to Keith. He understood that the guitar player was leading it. You know, going back to the early Bill Wyman riffs and uh, even to where they are today, there's a reason they've survived as long as they have. They are the greatest rock and roll band, and they're proving it with sweat and blood. You know, they're doing it on the road. Being a studio band is lovely. The Beach Boys made great records in the studio, but no one's confusing what they did with what the Rolling Stones did, how they could motivate an arena full of people. I got to knock something off of my bucket list this last summer because I took my 19-year-old son to see the Stones here in D.C., my my take on it was that they're finally realizing maybe this really can't last forever. And they were playing with uh, grit and integrity I hadn't heard for a long time. And I've never been disappointed by a Stones concert. Now they also have a, a good handle of what they can do. They're playing to their strengths. I don't think there are any Chuck Berry songs in the whole set. And honestly, I, I don't think it's because they can peel them off with the same alacrity and venom, you know, and kind of knife edge danger that they used to. I don't think they could play Carol the way they did in 1969. It wouldn't have the same effect. And that's why those songs aren't on the list. They know that they have to be great every time out. And as long as they're great, nobody has a problem. But if they start to falter a little bit, people are going to say they're washed up. And they know they have to be great and leave that audience happy every time out. And I think you're saying the same thing. They know how to do that, and they know how to do it to this day. People were calling them washed up in 1975. No one could possibly conceive of a 70-year-old Bruce Springsteen, let alone an 80-year-old Bob Dylan, let alone a 75-year-old Mick Jagger, who just got off of had heart surgery, and he's still jogging you know, 15 miles during every performance. And Charlie Watts is 78 years old, and that's two hours of Rolling Stones music. And I, you know, I don't care if their tempos are a little bit more relaxed, if he had a good night's sleep, if touring is you know in the lap of luxury these days. It's playing the drums for two hours of the Rolling Stones. That is no small job. And if he screws up, everyone knows it. Mick can make a mistake. Keith can sort of lay off of it a little bit, hit a power chord, and kind of let the rest of the band cover for him a little bit. Ronnie's seems to be re-energized. Charlie can't make a mistake. He misses the two or the four. The whole house knows it. There is no margin of error for the drummer. But um, Charlie Watts' mistakes, though, are kind of what makes the Rolling Stones great. <laughs> we talk about that in, in the book, of course, is that some of these idiosyncrasies, I, I mean, in any other professional recording situation, someone would have pushed stop and said, hey, let's do that again. But these are the things that make the Stones so wonderful. Famously, the beginning of Start Me Up, he starts backwards. Oh my God, on, on uh, the live record, Get Your Yaya's Out, on, on, on the first song, they start backwards. The beat is turned around and he has to flop it. They recorded several concerts and they chose the cut that had the mistake in it because I think flipping the beat and starting loose and showing they can sort it out is part of their charm. What kind of reception are you getting to your book? It's fantastic. Actually, the feedback's been great. I've heard from people in the Stones camp that they really dig it. It's being passed around. That's very rewarding, of course. And everything that you've said is like incredibly kind. And uh, that's kind of what, what I'm hearing. I don't know that everyone's marking up their books. <laughs> but um, yeah, everybody, I think, is digging it. They're digging the language. Uh, they're digging the writing, which it's really weird. People don't feel find it incumbent upon themselves to write with style or verve, to take chances. 
And that's sort of what I really went for. And I mean, I, you know, it's working without a tightrope, but the rewards have been fantastic. Cause I think people appreciate that I'm just not rehashing the story, but I really got, got deep into it and I kind of, you know, pulled the sheets off of it and see what was really going on in there. And I'm not afraid to call out the Rolling Stones when they are making bad records. You got to earn it. And that's, you know, that is the great thing about the Stones. They did earn it. They obviously drifted in the mid seventies into cocaine and uh, celebrity and this jet set lifestyle. Keith had uh, famously, you know, a terrible drug problem. He's the most celebrated heroin addict in history. This is not good for business. But in 1978, and they're only 30 years old, I think they felt the punk rock was kind of chasing them, was kind of biting them on the ass. And they came out and they had to prove one more time that they were the greatest rock and roll band in the world. And if you watch the document of that tour, Some Girls Live in Texas, it's blistering. It's incredible. And I think it was a period after that, they were able to relax and just be the Rolling Stones, and be entertainers. And, you know, sure, there's a little bit of Las Vegas-esque quality to what they do now. They're very concentrated on the show. They have the giant screens. The stages are enormous. There's a lot of pyrotechnics. But when it comes down to it, they can play. Well, I think they regroup not so much after 78, but after 81, and they took the hiatus. And I think they came back and they realized they needed a new model if they were going to keep doing this. And I think they've gotten better. I think they've dropped some of the... Uh, pyrotechnics and some of the extra extraneous stuff and they've gotten back to the music somewhat it's, it's a different model that came in those years and I, th- I think it's worked very well for them hopefully as they get older they get a little wiser the real surprise which we haven't talked about is they put out that blues record a few years ago blue and lonesome and that record's fantastic it shows the stones really at their best they're relaxed they're playing blues like they did when they started everything is so relaxed nothing is hurried everything is behind the beat my inclination especially after years of playing punk rock is to push everything. And I think I'm, I'm a good drummer. I've played lots of blues and R&B bands, but I still want to push things a little harder. And Charlie knows how to lay back off of it. It's incredible. There's a very sexual component to rock and roll. And no one wants to you know, hear a band that climaxes on the first note. And the Stones, they're so good at holding back and teasing the beat. It's, it's, it's fantastic. And that's the grease. That's the sex in the equation. That's the roll, not the rock. And no one does it better. That album is one of my top five or six Rolling Stones albums. It's so good, and it's with all the trappings gone. It's just getting back to the roots of what the Rolling Stones are about. And it's just wonderful how they were able to put their imprimatur on these great classic songs. I hope people will listen to that album a little bit more. It's, it's incredibly good. And what's nice is you get Mick Jagger doing what he's good at, not being the Mick Jagger he thinks people need or want, you know, to see sort of glammed up Mick Jagger, the rock star Mick Jagger, the, you know, larger than life Mick Jagger. It's a guy who is a great blues musician, uh, surrounded by other great blues musicians. And it's very minimal. And you know, it's a great thing is Charlie Watts China symbol, that large trashy symbol that has never has any history on blues or jazz records. Uh, on old jazz records, it does a little bit when people were using special effects symbols and he plays it all over blue and lonesome. And that's just, like another stage of Charlie Watts kind of finding this old thing. And he found a way to make it musical and make it even more more Charlie Watts than Charlie Watts. After I read your book, I went back and listened to Blue and Lonesome specifically for that. And I, I thought, wow, I didn't quite realize what he was doing here. And this is really some some tremendous stuff. You know, it's that jazz thing. And he found another sound, that another way to kind of subvert you know, the status quo of playing the blues. It's absolutely fantastic. You know, that's why Charlie Watts matters. I mean, it's a lot more than anything that's obvious. It's a lot more than a cat playing a small drum set. It's a lot more than just the backbeat. There's, it's, it's very much part of the formula. You know, I say, you know, I mean, hydrogen is pretty cool. Oxygen is pretty cool, but 
you got to put them together to get water. And that's the whole point. It's Charlie plus Keith. You know, and obviously Mick Jagger, you know, is, is the Rolling Stones as well, but it can't be done without it. I think that's the perfect way to sum up our conversation. This has been an absolute pleasure, and I'm really looking forward to doing what I can to get the word out about Mr. Charlie Watts. I appreciate it very much. You've been more than kind, and I, I, I think I hope that the world uh, knows that uh, Charlie, you know, is you know back there doing it for the Rolling Stones. I just think it's one of those things that we sadly take for granted. It's going to be a sad time when there is no more Charlie Watson. Let's be honest. I mean, he's 78 years old. The Rolling Stones are not getting younger. How much longer can they do this for? Well, I, you know, there's the sun, the moon, and the Rolling Stones. They live in their universe, and, and that's just the way they're always going to be. Mike, let me just say thank you very much for your time. This was a wonderful conversation. I love the book, and I wish you all the best luck with it. Well, the pleasure has uh, been mine. It's really fun to talk to someone who plays the drums, uh, who, who gets it uh, on so many levels. Uh, if it's okay, I'd like to remind people to visit me at MikeEdison.com. There's an excerpt from the book, and there's uh, some well, all sorts of videos and audio and some playlists you can listen to to go along with the book. You can always reach out to me, and of course, the book's available on Amazon and wherever better books are sold. But please support your local independent bookseller. Well, absolutely, and I will make sure that all of those links are in the show notes. All right, right on. This has been a gas. All right. Well, thank you very much. Okay. Okay.